News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to the 200th episode of FAQ NYC. I'm Alex Berklin here with Professor Christina Greer, Katie Honan, and Harry Siegel. In a bit, Justin Tinsley, author of It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him, will join Chrissy and Harry for a look at Clinton Hill and Bed-Stuy back in the day and much more. But first, here's just some of what's been happening over another wild week in New York. New York State is getting a second congressional primary date in August, in addition to the scheduled one in June. Why? Well, in April... New York State Court of Appeals ruled that the new state Senate district maps drawn up by Democrats were in violation of the state's constitution, and new maps would have to be drawn up. Democrats filed a lawsuit to keep the primary elections in June using the current maps, but on Tuesday, an Albany judge put the kibosh on that idea. So some new primaries will be held in August after new maps and districts are made up. Self-described blue-collar Mayor Adams is getting some heat for his glitzy travel schedule of late, including an extremely secret dinner attended by Paris Hilton, Kate Hudson, Goldie Hawn, Casey Affleck, and various other CAA hotshots during his recent three-day trip to L.A. While his campaign paid for the trip, Adams has said since returning that he was there as mayor to sell New York as a product and learn from other mayors. But that's been a sore spot with some Albany lawmakers already irked that he hasn't given them their due as they consider renewing control of public schools, a crucial development, affordable housing subsidy, and expanding the city's speed zone cameras, all things that the state controls currently. Finally, a fourth inmate this year died at Rikers just after another damning report about the infamous jail came out from the New York Board of Corrections, an oversight body not to be confused with the Department of Corrections that runs the state jails and prisons. The board found that correction officers failed to aid all three dying inmates. The report comes as a judge is considering whether to take control of the city jails, which already has a special monitor away from Mayor Adams. On Saturday, another inmate, Deshawn Carter, died by what appears to be suicide by hanging. Responding to that report, Department of Corrections board member Joseph Ramos, another Adams appointee, declared that such occurrences were natural, drawing a lot of criticism. So Katie, you have been all over New York covering the mayor for the city. How's he doing after more than four months on the job? Alex, thank you and congrats. I have only experienced a small percentage of 200 episodes, but it's it's a big accomplishment. So congrats to everyone who's been here since the beginning. Um, You know, you touched upon a lot of the things that the mayor has been criticized for over the last two weeks. You know, that trip to L.A. last week, um, visiting all over uh, and then his flight got canceled, which anyone who's flown recently, we've all kind of had some experience with horrible flights. So we know that that's that's a possibility when you're flying commercial. Um, and, you know, he has received some criticism, n- notably over what he's doing in L.A. when when he could be in New York doing things. You know, The Post had a story this week looking at um, Albany legislators who, who say that he hasn't met with them. And there's a lot of things that the state controls that the mayor wants. The mayor's pushing for mayoral control of schools. That's in Albany, the people in Albany's hands. They argue that he should be up there. He was supposed to go this week to Albany. He He's postponed that trip. Um, so there is that criticism. Um, why isn't he in New York? Uh, and we don't expect the mayor to not travel, right? I mean, this week he hosted the mayor of London. And of course, he was joking with the mayor of London asking, 
Um, does the press criticize you when you leave? Like they criticize me. I will say the mayor of London brought a bunch of British reporters to city hall on his whole trip. So I guess they give them enough time so they can go with them. Um, so that's the issue. Uh, and there's still these big, big questions about how is the mayor doing? It's only been, we're in our fifth, we're in the fifth month of the mayor. Um, there's still some, Dangling appointments that need to be made. Last week, he appointed former city councilman who was working as a senior advisor to him, Eric Ulrich, as the Department of Buildings Commissioner. Um, we still have an interim fire commissioner. There are these little things that still need to be taken care of. Um, and of course, the looming question of the big issues of the city Um Crime is an issue for a lot of people. It's sort of the big issue for Mayor Adams. There's an announcement later today. You know, by the time this podcast comes out, I guess we'll know about it. But where the mayor said he's going to address public safety, I don't know what that could be. Um, there's just the big city questions. He wants mayoral control of schools. Is he doing enough in Albany to get it? Um, what will we see this summer? You have issues with you know, students who maybe are not up to par in terms, you know, they've had remote schooling for two years. What is being done on that level? Just new administration working out the kinks in different agencies. And and that's where I see Mayor Adams now and figuring out um, what he needs to do. Katie, can you tell me why the UFT didn't show up to support Mayor Adams at City Hall during like the rally when yeah. he is trying to campaign to get control of the public schools. And if for anyone who doesn't know, UFT is the United Federation of Teachers. So they're like big teachers union. Yeah. So the mayor was asked that at the rally and he said, you can ask them. Uh, he said he had had dinner that weekend with UFT president, Mike Mulgrew. Um, and, and I think they are very, uh, they're more cautious about what they're supporting in terms of, of mayoral control. I know there's still contract negotiations going on, um, but he was supported by, and, and by the way, the rally that we, that the mayor had this week for mayoral control was postponed from the previous week when he was stuck in LA. Um, so you had members from uh, 32BJ and some of the other unions, HTC, um, who some of them work in schools, some, you know, 32BJ members work in schools, but hotel trade union members that, you know, it was pointed out that they have kids in public school. So this is what they want. Um, and U of T has said they support mayoral control, but I, I think they have not been out at in front as much as other unions have. Katie, I had a quick question about the changing of the dates. Um, because most of our listeners know that the, the primary uh, in New York is June 28th, but now I'm seeing that we will not only have a primary June 28th for lieutenant governor and governor and I believe some statewide races, but we'll now have a primary sometime in August for yeah. other races. Can you please explain that? And also, can you tell us how much is that going to cost us, please? The cost, I don't know. I do know, uh, layman's terms, it's confusing as hell. And you're taking, uh, you know, again, we talked about this when we spoke with Bridget Bergen and, and, and Steve last week, but the goal is to get more people to vote, mm -hmm. to try to make it like a little bit less confusing. But a federal judge ruled on Tuesday that it, it ordered that New York move its congressional primary to August. Um, you know, they tried to stop the state from pushing the date back by two months. This was the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. They said that it would reduce the turnaround time before the general election and risk disenfranchising New Yorkers. This is from NBC News, just you know, so I don't mess it up because I'm confused by a lot of it as well. Um, the federal judge last week denied that request. He called it a Hail Mary pass. Um, so now we have a congressional primary on August 23rd, uh, which 
people probably have vacations. So there's Getting a, kids a June for school. Yeah. It's a well, June primary and now an August primary in a time of year when most people are not even thinking about, look, I think the June primary is still a lot for people to, cause they still think of a September primary. So it's just, it adds confusion to something that's already very confusing. Well, I've always said, I don't think that New Yorkers have voter apathy. I think we have voter fatigue. We're yeah. now going to ask New Yorkers to go to the polls three times. So June, August, not September, and then November. But right. then some folks, especially the ones in Brooklyn, we already went to the polls last month for special elections. Right. So there's some people who are voting four times a year. Now, I don't mind voting early and often Chicago style and the history <laughs> of the civil rights movement. I, I take it very seriously. But there are a lot of people who have constraints, financial, child care, parent care, location, and in sort of the cost of getting to the polls where they just won't be able to do it. To say nothing of the, I think Harry put, you know, 25 to 30 million additional that it's going to cost the state. And I mean, I guess we've got the money. We can always find the money. It's elections. We need to do it. But in August, I mean, how are we even going to advertise to voters so that they know to turn out? Oh, it's it's confusing. And I think there is still, and, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but they could there's still the possibility of ditching the June primary altogether, or is that decided today in terms of that they will still have the June primary, still have the yeah. So that was decided today. Sorry about that. So they'll still have June, still have August. Um yeah, I, I think and I think voters, like the regular voters, there's a lot of I think people often are just kind of lectured. You gotta vote. Don't forget to vote. Don't to get forget to vote when no one's looking at these systemic things that are making it actually difficult to vote. Now, you know, obviously there's voter oppression, but it's just confusing. And it, it should be made simpler, right? You go to other states where they have same-day registration, you have a longer period to drop off vote, all this kind of stuff. So to add this August primary and that has to do with like enough time for overseas voters, military voters and absentees and all that. But um, I think it just adds confusion to something that we should be making as simple as possible. Can you explain a little bit about like what happened in that court decision, right? When uh, the judge decided that uh, they were going to extend the primaries to August, there was something about New Yorkers abroad that wouldn't be able to vote. Yeah, I think it has to do with making sure people have enough time to get those ballots that then they then can mail back. You can't send the the absentee ballots until you know what district you're in. And yeah. this is also a problem for some candidates. Yeah. We don't know what district they're running in. So so we have one state lawmaker, Alessandra Biazzi, FAQ, NYC guest, right, <laughs> who's given up her safe seat to run for Congress but maybe doesn't even live in the district she's running in now. And she won't know until, until these new maps get, get drawn. So it's, it's, it's pretty wild. I think very hard for candidates, let alone voters to just track what's going on. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and people even for like assembly seats, when they change those maps, you had people who announced they were running and then it was like, oops, I'm not running anymore because the district I was going to run in, I don't live in anymore. So it's just a lot of confusion. I know this, the maps happen, you know, the, in the time frame in which they happen based on the set, all this kind of stuff. But um, there's a really good article in Politico today uh, by Bill Mahoney about he went up to Bath, New York. Um, I mean, we have mostly New York City listeners, so I can say wherever the fuck that is. And that <laughs> is where <laughs> they're deciding the um, the maps and all this. You know, this is the judge that's doing it. And, and a lot is resting in this tiny I've never been to Bath, New York. I'm sure it's a beautiful place, but you know, all this kind of stuff. Do they take a lot of baths there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Had to do it. Sorry. I was picking apples with my kids in upstate New York. And uh, there's this guy 
wearing the shirt with capital letters, periods between each one. And it spells out Dilligaf, a big dude with like tattoos and a mean looking goatee, like all scowly looking, like clearly either a cop or a criminal. I was curious. Um, and, you know, I start working that out of my head and then I say it out loud and my kids stare at me. Do I look like I give a fuck? <laughs> and then I look it up and I realize that this is, in fact, also a town in upstate New York, uh, in the Lake George region, Dillagaff, um, that now has uh, apparently a couple of stores that, 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 that market, you know, like uh, aggressive male merchandise for, for, for people who do not look like they give a fuck and, and, and very much <laughs> want you to know it by, by having this on their T-shirt. So, so maybe there is hope for the upstate economy yet. Yeah. I'd like to take back my wherever the fuck that is because Bath actually looks like a very beautiful place in Steuben County. I don't want to, you know, I have a brother-in-law from Canandaigua. I don't want to seem insulting to, I take it back, but it's I, probably I think beautiful. It's, I'm sure it is, but like, let's also be clear. <laughs> it's not easy for a lot of folks to get to. And I think that's been the frustration. It's not easy to get to by plane, train, public transport of any sort, you know, bus takes forever. And then you're assuming that folks have cars and you know time and gas money i think i looked it up last last week it's like five hours away from new york city yeah so in there and that's probably from like the bronx for you Chris, right. from brooklyn it's probably six hours oh please you know <laughs> and then also it's like let's find a car so i just you know i don't I could like drive this us. disingenuous <laughs> let's make it so that it's equitable and we want people to come but like clearly you don't want people to come because where is bath i mean like i i'm sure if we surveyed the vast majority of new yorkers in the entire state could they point out bath anywhere on a map no speaking of pointing things out on a map <laughs> chrissy you, do you think do you think it matters if eric adams is doing like cool secret dinners in la and like partying with dave Chappelle, or is this just like a uh, sort of tabloid sideshow I think it's both and Harry. I mean, on the one hand, he's the mayor of New York, right? I mean, he's more powerful than the governor. He's the most powerful mayor in the country. Uh, it makes sense that he has international relationships. He's different from Bloomberg in the sense that Bloomberg hung out with lots of people because he's a billionaire, you know? Um, and we never batted an eye. I mean, he was always at hobnobby celebrity filled events and you know, traveling whenever and wherever. He just had a private plane and we never knew it unless we had a snowstorm and realized he was in Bermuda. So on the one hand, it's like, yeah, Eric Adams is is going to start, you know, fundraising and, and making friends and he likes the, the nightlife. And so not just New York nightlife, I mean, he likes the LA life and this is a dream job for him. On the other hand, it's like, slow your roll, as Katie mentioned, you've been here five months, so we can't have a de Blasio take two where it feels like you're everywhere but New York, you know? And you're allowed to have a personal life, you're allowed to hobnob and have fun and smile and all those good things. But I think it does get a little potentially sticky when so much is popping off in New York and there could be a perception that he's not here. And he does have the shadow of de Blasio, who never felt like he wanted to be here. And so Adams is riding this wave of like, you know, I love New York. I, I think this is the greatest place on earth. He can frame it as, you know, I'm drumming up business. Let's bring LA to, you know, let's bring Cali to New York. I get that. But we can't have, you know, fires and, and folks and children dying and, and, you know, people getting shot and police officers getting shot and, you know, homelessness issues and all the things that we know are going on in the city feeling like the mayor is like, he's in Chicago, he's in Miami, he's in LA. He's also not in like, you know, 
undesirable places. So you can't <laughs> say like, oh, I'm, I'm really trying to like, you know, figure these things out. It's like, well, you're not going to, you know, Dallas or Houston or, you know, places where it's like, you know, no, you're going to the fun places, you know, you're going to the big cities and trying to figure it out. So I think he's got a window, but he needs to be pretty careful before I think members of the press, rightfully so, start asking, why are you everywhere but the five boroughs? Plus, I don't really think they need the mayor in, I don't think Los Angeles needs the mayor of New York City to let them know about New York City. They're well aware of the product, as the mayor says. The product. Speaking of things popping off in New York and star-crossed trips to Los Angeles, <laughs> that is the perfect segue <laughs> oh, no. to introduce our guest, Justin Tinsley, who's the author of this, uh, this big, very rich new biography of the notorious B.I.G. It was all a dream. Let's jump right in. So welcome to FAQ NYC. It's Chrissy Greer with Harry Siegel. And we have Justin Tinsley here today to talk about his new book. It was all a dream. Biggie and the world that made him. And so I obviously, Justin, I had to have you on because anyone who knows me knows that Biggie Smalls, A, is the illest. And he's my favorite rapper of all time. I'm stuck in 1993 to 1998 when it comes to hip hop. I think everything begins and ends with Biggie. And so everyone else is just like a distant, you know, 50th place. So when this book <laughs> was coming out, I was just like, I have to read it. I have to have it. We have to have you on. Uh, I'm so sad. Our original sort of founder of the podcast, uh, Ozzy Papera, is also a massive hip hop head. So I know he's having serious FOMO. Shout out to Ozzy. Um, but I know that you, you know, you write for The Undefeated, which is more of sports and race. I've seen you on mm -hmm. Around the Horn because I watch a lot of ESPN. And so talk to us really quickly about the transition from sports writing to hip hop writing. I mean, I know that there's a confluence, but how did this sure. project emerge? Well, you know, first and foremost, I just want to thank y'all uh, for bringing me on to this podcast. Uh, as I've been telling you, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And uh, that's, that's a really great question to start off with, because when I was originally hired by ESPN, which is shoot almost seven and a half years ago at this point, uh, when the undefeated, which is now Anscape, when I was really coming into like fruition, I guess you could say, uh, they brought me on to cover like the intersections of like sports and pop culture and things of that nature. I, I always love writing about sports, but I loved writing about sports from beyond just like a box score. Uh, I tell people all the time, you don't need me to tell you LeBron James is good at basketball. I think any person with the marginal knowledge of basketball can understand that. You don't need me to tell you Naomi Osaka is really, really good at tennis. I, th I think you can see that. But I love telling the stories beyond just the sport itself. So, um, and the same with music. Like, I'm not here to tell anybody, like, oh, this is a five, five mic album right here. And if you don't agree, then you don't know hip hop. No, I love telling those stories beyond just the music and beyond just the sport. So I always wrote about both. And so that you know, appearing on Around the Horn kind of came naturally because I'm used to talking sports. Now, granted, I don't talk about sports in the same way that I actually write about them, but I can talk about the the Western Conference Finals or the Eastern Conference Finals or, you know, uh, the the late game set that Serena had in the last major. So it's, it's always been one of those things. I know when to put my sports hat on. I know when to put my music hat on. And the, and the best of times, I, I can put both hats on at the same time. So mm -hmm. I, I love just the they, they always kind of collide in some sort of way every time I write about them. But I love it when I can do stories like 
Marvin Gaye trying out for the Detroit Lions in 1970. Mm -hmm. And the first two voices you hear on the song, What's Going On, are actually uh, the, the 1967 uh, offensive and defensive rookies of the year. I love it when they come together like that. Yeah. So it, it's always been something that 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 really excited me from day one because I knew uh, from from a very early age I was not going to be Michael Jordan. Right. I knew from a very early age I was not going to be able to rap like Biggie Smalls. But I did love the fact that I love people like Stuart Scott. I love people mm -hmm. like Ralph Wiley. I I the the vibe and the source were my you know cultural bibles growing up in the 90s and i love storytelling because i think storytelling the best type of storytelling at least and this is why we're still talking about biggie small as a quarter century after his passing i think the best storytelling is immortal and i yeah. was like if i could be a really good storyteller i can live forever or at least for a very long time so well, I mean, and to say nothing of Biggie's great song, I got a story to tell where that just solidified. I was like, you are the best storyteller because you're telling a story within a story and I am hooked. And, but, you, and know, you can see it play out. Yeah. You can, you can visually, I mean, just visually, you know, I, I used to always call him like, you know, my modern day Langston Hughes and people would, you know. A poet like Langston Hughes and can't lose when I cruise out on the expressway. Yeah. Guffaw. And I was like, no, just listen to how he uses language. But going back to your point about, you know, say Marvin Gaye and the Detroit Lions, as a political scientist, I always think about, well, what if Fidel Castro was actually, you know, drafted when he wanted to play baseball? Mm -hmm. And how, like, Cuba would have been a totally different place. Geopolitical relations between the United States, Russia, and Cuba would have been a totally different place in the Caribbean. And so this this confluence of like sports, race, politics, and everything yeah. is, is always so fascinating. Now, just tell our listeners really quickly, where are you from? Because, you know, a lot of Brooklyn folks still yeah. feel very protective of Biggie. And, For you know, sure. I'm a new Brooklyn transplant. So mm -hmm. as, as Biggie's number one fan, I still feel like certain, you know, diehard, you know, Bed-Stuy folks are like, little girl, what do you mean? <laughs> like, where are you yeah. coming from? Yeah, no, and it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. And, it, and it's funny you ask that because I was born in Salisbury, North Carolina. This is about 20 minutes north of Charlotte. And when my parents got divorced, I moved to uh, basically like central Virginia with my mom and my grandmother. So I'm not from New York. I'm, I, you can hear me talk. I'm not <laughs> from New York. So, But I always had a deep appreciation for hip hop just growing up. And mm -hmm. I felt like I learned, obviously, I'm not from Brooklyn and I'm not from Bed-Stuy. So I understand why they're protective of Biggie. They should be. I mean, from an outsider looking in, for the for the majority I'm, for the majority of my life until I got to Brooklyn until I got to New York like when I heard the name Brooklyn the first name I thought of was Biggie Smalls like he represented what that borough meant honestly he represented what the entire New York City meant for me growing up because I, I listened to Biggie so much I listened to his music so much he painted such vivid pictures that you know I knew what that New York City skyline looked like you know I, I understood my understanding of what New York was what it smelled like, what, what it felt like, what it looked like was through Biggie Smalls and obviously through other people as well, but Biggie Smalls in particular. So I know I'm not from New York, but I obviously I spent a lot of time in New York, just, you know, visiting, just doing report, reporting on other stories. And obviously I've written about Biggie Smalls a lot over the course of my career, uh, sometimes a lot in New York. So again, I can't say I will never be able to say I am a Bed-Stuy native, but I, I feel very confident in my in my knowledge of uh, the late great Christopher Wallace. Justin, hey, the book is a the book is a terrific read. Uh, you spend a bunch of time on it in there, but I'm mm -hmm. hoping you could talk a bit about uh, 
about young Christopher Wallace and like the, the, the Brooklyn, the Clinton Hill, the Bed-Stuy that yeah. he came up in uh, and, and how that shaped him. And uh, as you've been reporting on him and working on this book and in New York, if you, you recognize parts of that uh, when you're there now or if it's just a, an entirely different place in your estimation. Yeah. And again, this is this is spoken from somebody who's not from Bed-Stuy, but obviously I, I spent a lot of time in New York uh, over the course of my career just reporting in that uh, this, that and the third. But you can tell how I can tell how New York has changed just over the last 10 years. So when I when I speak to my some of my close friends who are from Brooklyn, whether it's Fort Greene, whether it's Clinton Hill, whether it's Bed-Stuy, they'll tell me they were like, man, this place looks to- like if you. They'll tell me, like, if you go back to my, my my like elementary school years, this place looks completely different. If you go back to my postgraduate and college years, this place looks completely different. So uh, the fact that, you know, that place has changed so much, you can kind of see the story of that in the book, because you can't just talk about Biggie Smalls in a vacuum because none of our stories are just about us. You know, it's about the environment that raised us. It's about the legislation that was passed that influenced what our environments look like. So when we talk about, you know, Christopher Wallace in elementary school, he's looking at this is around Christopher Wallace. Let's just say at the the start of the 80s. What does New York look like at the start of the 80s is is dealing with the the ramifications of a severe economic downturn in the city in the mid to late 70s that stripped schools of its arts programs that stripped schools from. Uh, of so many teachers that th- basically took all the the culture and soul out of what these schools represented uh, represented in the 70s it stripped all of that away so once you start stripping resources away once you start doing all of that and it's the the financial crisis that was defining the city from 1975 on and then once you start talking about all these soldiers from Vietnam coming back and they're addicted to drugs and they're not being given the treatment that they deserve you understand why things basically it was a domino effect for what happened. And so once Christopher Wallace got off that stoop in Clinton Hill and Best Best, he was involved in a war that he didn't start. He was born into it like so many other people of his gen- generation, especially young black men and women who were coming up in New York at that time. Like you can't talk like I, I, I was telling somebody the other day. It's easy to criminalize like, oh, well, Biggie was selling drugs. He shouldn't have been selling drugs. Okay, you can say that. But if we're going to criminalize him, why don't we criminalize the environment that, you know, he and so many others grew up in? Why don't we criminalize the the decision makers and the people in power at the time for making the decisions that they did for leaving people in these neighborhoods? What they felt like was no other choice. So. When you ask me about Christopher Wallace's childhood. For a while, it was an innocent childhood. It was just he and his mother, Valletta. You know, uh, Valletta, obviously, she moved to New York from Jamaica at the end of the 1960s. She had her son, Christopher, in May 1972. And from the moment her son was born, that's what her life revolved around. Obviously, she had her life going to school and, you know, uh, her social life or what it what it consisted of then. But her life primarily revolved around her son. And she would do any anything to keep her son happy. She would get him nice clothes. She would get him video games. She would get him anything that he needed to entertain himself because Valletta, she was not ignorant to what was going on outside of her door. She knew the type of environment. She, she had to walk to the subway every day to go to work. She saw things that were going on. And in her mind was 
if I can keep my son entertained, if I can keep him in the house, I can keep him away from what I see every day. As a parent, I cannot falter for that at all. I would never falter for that at all. But we know the reality of the situation that you're only going to be able to keep somebody under a roof for so long because Christopher, as she says many times, he was naturally inquisitive. And sometimes being inquisitive, it can get you in a lot of trouble. And so (laughs) that's just, you know, to answer your question just about his childhood, it it sounds cliche to say, but he was a product of his environment. He, he, He saw what was going on outside of his window. And once he started sitting on his stoop, you know, at 226 St. James, he had a basically a courtside seat for what the world looked like, or for, for, for what the world, for what he understood what it looked like. He saw the hand-to-hand deals. He saw the, you know, police pulling up and, and arresting people in his neighborhood. He saw some shootouts. He saw fights. He saw all of this. And at the end of the day, you're going to step off that stoop at some point. And once you step off that stoop, it's hard to control what a person does from there. So I know Violetta was a uh, was an educator. She was mm-hmm. at Beth Elohim in Park Slope for a long time. Yep. Christopher Wallace was briefly there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there. I'm just a couple, you know. So so uh, just a couple of years too late to have uh, to have tracked. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping you could talk about before uh, b- b- before. This young man like gets around the corner and like yeah. makes it to Fulton Street and like yep. really puts himself in the game. Uh, if you could talk a little about uh, Donald Harrison and uh, that sort of uh, that teaching, what that ended up meeting to, uh, to Biggie and uh, Jazz. Yeah, so that, that's a really great topic to bring up. Donald Harrison is one of those really important and integral figures in a young Christopher Wallace's life that may not get the like if if you really know who Biggie is, yes, you know who Donald Harrison is, but for the most part, he doesn't get mentioned with the you know the higher profile names that that Big would w- run with you know later in his life, you know the Puffies and you know the Junior Mafias and Jay Z, Tupac, so on and so forth. But Donald Harrison was actually very instrumental, <laughs> pun intended. And, uh, you know, influencing a young Christopher Wallace, just to give, you know, uh, the listener some of the backstory. Donald Harrison lived just a couple of doors down from Chris Christopher Wallace uh, in the early to mid 80s. I believe he lived at 218 St. James and Chris was at 226. And so while Chris would be Christopher would be sitting on his stoop uh, basically every day watching the, the neighborhood come and go, he would always see this guy walk around with instruments. And Chris, who was very into, uh, who was already very into music at that point, he mustered up the courage one day to just ask this guy, like, hey, who are you? Like, why do you always carry around instruments? And Donald Harrison basically told him, I'm a jazz player. Uh, I've been playing basically jazz all my life. Uh, I'm very into music. And Chris was like, hey, I'm into music. And you think I can like come over? Basically, they struck up a friendship. And so Chris went back to tell his mom, Valletta was like, hey, you mind if I go to guys house right down the street wants to teach me how to make music at first valetta was like who is this older man that has taken a liking to my son and wants to teach him music but once valetta met donald harrison i think she understood this was another way to keep christopher away from the streets she was like look this young this man you know chris he didn't have his dad growing up uh he, they they didn't have a relationship so valetta saw this as an older man 
uh, a, potentially being a, a very positive influence on her son. And she understood the value of that. So to make a long story short, she okays it. Christopher and his friends go over to Donald Harrison's apartment and Donald Harrison essentially teaches them the professionalism of how to make music. Okay. Here's where you stand in front of a mic. Listen to these jazz artists right here. This is how you potentially write a beat. This is what your cadence sounds like. Mm -hmm. This is what uh, counting bars sounds like. And you would, you know, Donald Harrison at first was uh, uh, skeptical. He was like, what are these, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old kids going to get out of listening to jazz music? They're not really going to like it. Like I'm going to be wasting their time. Christopher Wallace was one person who dove head deep into it. He loved the history of jazz. He loved uh, finding out how how he could improve himself, uh, you know, as a rapper. That was one thing Don Donald Harrison came to learn because he learned just as much from Christopher Wallace as Christopher Wallace did from him. Uh, he learned that Chris wanted to be a rapper, and he, Chris would record tapes over there. and And Donald Harrison told me that like he has he had, he's never released them. He, he's never let anybody else hear him, but he has uh, you know, early tapes, I believe, of Christopher Wallace at 13, 12, 13, 14 years old, just rapping about the world that he saw outside it wasn't as you know graphic as his later works would become but he would try to shop that music to like different record labels within the city and he was like the, the record labels were like this this kid is talented but not really looking for kid rappers at this point in like 1985 or 86 or whatever the time it may have been and but christopher learned so much about how to approach his own craft through donald harrison and he didn't talk about it a lot in his later years, but there are some interviews where Christopher Wallace would be like, no, I learned a lot about how to be a musician from Donald Harrison. And Donald Harrison is very integral into, you know, who Christopher Wallace eventually became as an artist. And Donald Harrison, he'll never take full credit for it. He was like, that guy was talented uh, from in and of his own right. But I just like think that I showed him a few things about how to carry himself in the studio that you know, he eventually took with him for the rest of his life. And if you listen to Biggie, he sounds like a rapper, but he also sounds like a jazz player, the way he can ride yeah. a beat. So Right. Yes. And, and work with a beat sometimes. He's like a wave to me. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. it's like he rides it, and then sometimes he's, he's um, obstinate with it, and it works. I think the reason why I love this book so much, and I, I like reading hip-hop memoirs and autobiographies, um, even from rappers that I don't even listen to. Like I, I read, you know, like, um, what was it? Uh, young, I think Jeezy's and just- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I read um, Two Live Crew. Um, mm -hmm. Uncle Why am I blanking on his name? Yes, Uncle Luke. Luther Campbell. Uncle Luke. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The reason why I love these books and I really appreciate yours is because as you said, it's not about the man himself necessarily. It's also the context, the political context and the disinvestment of cities, the racial dynamics between blacks and whites, and in Luther Campbell's case, and, and even in Biggie's case, you know, I wrote a book called Black Ethnics, thinking mm -hmm. about, you know, Caribbean identity, integral and integrating into black communities and how we know that there are differences and tensions that exist, but then, you know, the larger society is just black communities and white communities. And so I, I really, I was just so curious as to why it is Biggie is still so important. I know why he's important to me, right? I mean, yeah. music, musically, lyrically, uh, the storytelling has always resonated with me in, in a way that I just felt like opened me up as far as someone who loves literature and who loves poetry. 
But as you said before, he died a quarter of a century ago. Yeah. So like I have students who are wearing, you know, the ready to die t-shirt. I have, you know, young people who are just like, yeah, Biggie is, you know, one of my favorite rappers. And it's like, but you, you were never alive during the time of Biggie. And so what is it? I mean, everyone talks about when you, when you interview him, you know, he had this magnetic personality. He's a big guy, you know, and he's, he would talk about it on his own songs. It's like, you know, he's not rolling in like Tyson Beckford, you know, he yeah. knew that he wasn't, I mean, even Tupac, you know, on a scale of hotness, <laughs> as far yeah. as a concern, Tupac's on the, you know, he's in the, in the nines and tens. And Biggie's <laughs> like, you know, I know that's not me. However, there was something about him. And it's not just that ladies loved him. It's just like, people loved him and wanted yeah. to be around him. So why is it, do you think that 25 years later, you've got this best-selling book because we can't get enough of learning about this man from Brooklyn in a time where Brooklyn was not the Brooklyn it is today. It was, you know, sort of a, a poor, neglected, you know, kind of forgotten part of, quote unquote, the city. Why are we still entranced by Biggie? You know, that is such a phenomenal question and there's so many different ways you can go with it like honestly i won't even really tap into the musical element of it because i think the music speaks for itself as you said um but i think it's a multitude of different reasons i think there's a part of us that lost part of ourselves when when biggie died mm -hmm. and whenever we get a chance to talk about him it gives us an opportunity to go back to that point in our lives when he was around, when he was holding court and how much joy just his presence bought so many people. You know, I'm not I, I, it, as the book portrays, I'm not painting this dude as, as somebody who walked around with zero imperfections because none of us are like and he certainly uh, had his own imperfections. But when you talk to people who knew him, there was such a magnetic part of his personality that it was, it's an addiction that you can't kick, you know, like, yeah. and it wasn't magnetic in the sense of he was all rah-rah in your face. It was just like, whenever he would walk into a room, he could control a room just by not saying anything. His charisma like endeared him to people. And, you know, Big was what, 6'3", 300 pounds. So when a lot of people saw him, they were intimidated by him. But the moment you actually got a chance to interact with this guy, you know, he disengaged you almost immediately. Like, wait a minute. You know, this guy is like funny, not like cracking jokes, like your mama type jokes. Like, no, this dude, he can he can make a comedic situation out of anything. And he made people feel welcome when he was around. He made people feel like they were being seen when he was around. And like he, he was just somebody who understood the importance of making people people feel comfortable when he was around so for the people who knew him personally that's why he still matters you know tw a quarter century later because this guy is somebody who played a role into their identity in so many ways and once you don't ever lose something like that and from a from a macro standpoint we're talking about it like biggie smalls he played a role in all of our lives i think all of us remember where we were when we found out that he passed and, and we'll never forget where we were. And we cling on to that music because it's like it's such a visceral part of our of our life experience. And, and that's that's the great thing about music. It's not just Biggie, just any great artist like you. That music sticks to your ribs. That music sticks to your soul. Mm -hmm. And you won't ever let that part of you go. So that's why he's still relevant for a multitude of reasons. That's why he's still relevant a quarter century later, because part of us 
live through him and his music or what what we like to th- think live through him. So, I mean, he's a folk hero. He's, yeah. he's you mentioned Langston Hughes. Like I, I tell people all the time, like the, the way we hold artists like Billie Holiday and, you know, Marvin Gaye and Louis Armstrong and the way we hold them as like these like timeless type artists. I put Biggie Smalls in that same category. Mm-hmm. I put him in that same category. And, and when you look at his career, he did so much in such a short amount of time. I don't think there's ever been an artist artist to do as as much in as little bit of a time as Biggie Smalls did. His first album came out in September 1994, and he was dead by March 1997. And here it is, days before his 50th birthday in 2022, and he's still holding a vice grip. And in a lot of ways, even more than he did when he was alive. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about your students that, that are wearing the shirts. Somebody told them, like, yo, this guy is important. This guy meant a lot to a lot of people and his music shook up the world. His music changed everything. Like we're still talking about Biggie Smalls in the greatest of all time category. And he released two albums, right. the second of which he never got to see the success for. So, I mean, he, he's, he's just, he's still relevant a quarter century later because he, it, it's, it's like a safe space for us in a lot of ways, even though it's a tragic safe space. Right. Well, I mean, you know, and I debate with my friends all the time. We're just like, he only released two albums, Chrissy. And, uh, you know, because I am a a diehard Biggie fan. But I think Mm -hmm. also for me, so much of my identity as a Black person comes from just Biggie specifically. Not just hip hop, but like Biggie specifically. I I feel like that was also a turning point in like a, um, uh, a recognition and a solidification of Mm -hmm. my Black identity during that period of time. And like not even just like a sense of pride, but just like a sense of clarity. You know, I did not come from Bed-Stuy, did not come from, you know, streets where I saw drug interactions or whatever sure. it may be. But I think it was some sort of identification of a linked fate, which is what I talk about in my book, you know, of, of mm-hmm. like black people, it doesn't matter if you're in Brooklyn, it doesn't matter, the class, despite socioeconomic status and class and education level and even ethnicity, there's this linked fate between sort of black people from, from Cali to New York, yeah. from Florida to Wisconsin, like we're all sort of this interconnected. Now, when you were researching the book, which is very well researched, um, what's you. the what's the one thing that just kind of blew your mind? And if so, did it make it in the book? Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, there's so many different things, but I, it, we're, we're talking about the world and the context and the socio-political nature and how, how all these things are connected. One of the things that shocked me was, of course, Ready to Die came out on uh, September 13th, 1994. I did not realize that was the same day that the 1994 crime bill was signed into law. And obviously, we know what the 94 crime bill is. This is the piece of legislation that was passed uh, during Bill Clinton's first term in office, uh, right before supported the Supported by CBC members, congressional yep, black supported, by C- supported by black mayors across the country. Yep. So uh, really spearheaded by Joe Biden. Uh, at this point. And this, it, in the book, I talk about the, the 94 crime bill is basically a democratic response to Republicans saying, and basically throughout the eighties that like, Oh, Democrats are, uh, they're not tough on crime. They're going to allow all these criminals to run in your house. And like, you know, you know, rape the women in your family, kill your children, kill the, kill the husbands, basically just fear mongering tactics throughout the eighties, which work worked during like the rise of like the crack era, everything just paid into 
uh, a disgustingly perfect storm for like Republican candidates back then. But by 94, Democrats were like, we have to show that we're tough on crime and we're going to push this legislation through. And, and we remember that 94 crime bill for the term super predators. Mm-hmm. And which was, you know, pushed by by many people within the Clinton administration, Bill and Hillary. And just so and I, I'm not trying to make it like a political type of thing. But when you when, when you do your history on the 94 crime bill and what it is and what its impact was and you listen to Ready to Die within the context of that, it sounds like it, it's it, it, it's like one of the biggest political statements in rap that you can make. And, and and I know Biggie didn't do that on purpose. He just picked September 13th and was like, all right, let's roll with it. And it just happened to be that earlier that day, that bill was signed in the law. But when you listen to Ready to Die, it sounds like the audio response to why the, all these politicians and legislators were saying like, oh, we need to protect our streets. These super predators are out here. They're going to like kill all of our families, this, this, that, and the third. But what Biggie is saying on here, I mean, he says it. the album is called Ready to Die. Mm-hmm. Not because I'm actually ready to die, but I am ready to die to get this money, to, you know, to evade the police that are over-policing my neighborhoods. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to die because I got to sell these drugs because I have no other opportunities because all the other opportunities have been stripped Right. From um, and I gotta from feed my, my daughter, and I gotta feed my daughter. I gotta feed my family just you like everybody I mean? else. Because because like Biggie was not gonna get a nine to five. That's one thing he was adamant about. I'm not gonna get a nine to five. I will get fired the first day. And um, so that was one thing that like really shocked me. Uh, just throughout the book, just just in, in my research and reporting and writing of the book, and it's just like wow. I, when you look at the title, it says Biggie in the world to me big in the world that made him excuse me and like that's kind of like the quintessential example of what i'm talking about there like all these things are intertwined i know sometimes it may feel like in the book it's like okay well where is he going w- with this topic but when you dive right back in the biggie like ah i see why why he did that or at least i hope that's what you say right. <laughs> you know so um but also too i think one of the more lighthearted ones was just just how protective he was of his friends and how loyal he was to his friends. I know one of the great interviews in the book was uh, with Drew Dixon and Drew Dixon is a former music industry executive. Uh, she's also one of, one of the main voices and people and the, the, the fa- fascinating and captivating and also painful on the record documentary that came out last year that talks about Russell uh, Simmons's uh, years of sexual assault and rape within women within the music industry. And Drew Dixon was in there. But she knew Biggie growing up in the 90s. She lived in a brownstone, like not too far f- from where Biggie and Valletta live. And she, she would talk she would talk to me about her friendship with Big. And that, that was just one of the most beautiful interviews that I ever had. Like, I, I got a smile on my face just thinking about that interview because she just talked about Biggie in just this like caregiver, protective type of manner. And it's just like, yeah, when I would get off the train, like Biggie would still outside with his friends, you know, just doing whatever. And he was like, Drew, what are you doing? Like walking by yourself? Like it's nine o'clock at night. Like, and he was like, yo, every time you get off the train, come get me and I will walk you home. He said, because you can't be out here just walking the streets at night like this. Like I got you. And it's just, and I talked to so many other people from the neighborhood, particularly like women as well. And they would be like, nah, big would do the same thing for me. And it wasn't like. Trying to holler. He wasn't like he was trying to holler. Now don't get it twisted. He did holler at a lot of women. <laughs> he did holler at a lot of women. But with them, it was it was just one of those things that stuck with them even to this day. Like when Drew would 
be you know matriculating up the ranks in the music industry getting executive level job job she would be like the first person who would call me without fail and she had had no clue how biggie found this out it would be biggie calling leaving her a voicemail like yo drew congrats on the new job and he would do like a little freestyle on voicemail and she was like one of the big regrets of her life was not saving those voicemails and her why she didn't was one of the more powerful quotes of the book and she was like i never saved those voicemails because I never envisioned a world where Biggie wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's so many moments like that through, throughout my interview process. So, you know, on, on FAQ, Harry and I and, and our co-host, Katie Honan, who's who's um, at City Hall talking about policing and at, at One Police <laughs> Plaza right now. Yep. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the city and how the city is changing and obviously our new mayor, Eric Adams. Mm-hmm. And then with my friends who are Black political scientists, we always talk about, you know, what would politics look like if say Martin Luther King were alive, you know, would he be a Republican? You know, would he be some conservative black man who's waving a wooden spoon? Like, you know, y'all Negroes need to get it together. I did all this work and you know, that we've seen a lot of civil rights activists have have, some of still in the game, but then Mm -hmm. some have gone to hyper conservatism. And then you look at people like Jay-Z and Puffy who are just black capitalists. Mm-hmm. In capitalism, nonetheless, but they're just black people. I mean, Jay Z is talking about his boss yachts, and he, you know, he's part of the Barclays deal that ransacked Brooklyn, that created hyper gentrification, that forced black people out in horribly criminal ways for a 0.1% stake in the Nets that he no mm-hmm. longer even has. Um, as you can tell, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I wasn't a fan of Jay Z since the second Biggie passed, and he's like, I'm the king of New York. And I was like, says who? Because <laughs> clearly it's not me, and the body's not even cold. So I've, I have a strong disdain for Jay Z. I never can had see. That I can moment. see. But I do think that this hyper black capitalism of rappers of that particular Biggie era is very clear and it's very potent. And so as we celebrate Biggie's 50th birthday, what do you think Biggie would make of? not just the state of hip hop, but obviously the state of New York with the gentrification that has occurred with his old neighborhood, which is, you know, like juice bars and, you know, almond milk and the whole nine. But also would he be this hyper black capitalist that we've seen sort of Puffy and Jay-Z go in that, that direction? Like, do you think that he would team up with Eric Adams to sort of talk about crime and policing and getting drugs off the street? Like, I know it's that's a that's a heavy question for you. <laughs> yeah. but, no, no, I get you it. You know, it's been twenty five years, but I'm yeah. curious as to like what he would have become because we've seen folks go in a lot of different directions. I mean, Snoop yeah. is essentially a caricature, right? I mean, no disrespect, but like he's he's another black capitalist that will sell any product. I mean, I think a lot of those guys from that era have been very fortunate and made a lot of money. Um, but they're not necessarily involved in politics and their respective cities in ways that they once critiqued and rapped about. Yeah. I mean, for one, I think the short answer is we would, we honestly, I have no idea, but when, I mean, Biggie during his time on earth, he never, never hid his quest to make as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You know what I mean? Super, super Nintendo, Sega Genesis. When I was dead broke, man, I couldn't picture this. You know, he has a song with Jay-Z called I Love the Dope. Yeah. He got another song called Dead Presidents. You know, Big has another song called Get Money. 
Like so, so big, yeah, Chrissy, listen yeah. to the catalog. He's telling you where he would be in twenty twenty two. Big never hid his, you know, financial dreams. And you know, even at the time of his death, he was working on uh, entrepreneurial, uh, you know, endeavors. Whether it be, you know, a restaurant, he wanted a clothing store. He he and Heavy D were working on opening a clothing store together. So he would have, I believe, he would have uh, stepped more and more into. The, the the business world maybe not in the same way that uh you know jay-z has but who knows like he and jay-z were forming a, a musical group together they mm-hmm. were they were thick as thieves at yeah. the time of his death so i do believe that big would have went largely into you know the entrepreneurial business side of the world and it it, it, it might have upset people you know in terms of some of the business deals that he made because when he was on earth he never hid his conquest. Even when he was selling drugs, he, he never hit his conquest. He was like, look, I'm here to make money. Right. As much money as I can while I'm here. And, you know, he was a hustler at the end of the day. And I think when we see Biggie now, when we think about Biggie now, he's still 23 and 24 years old. And we still have that, you know, we still hold hey, him close geography, to the basically. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, I, I have... I don't doubt that Big would have, you know, stepped further and further into these worlds and the same way that Jay-Z did, the same way that, that Puffy has. And uh, I, I, I don't know if he would have stood beside Eric Adams and be like, hey, let's work together. I don't know that, but I, I just don't know. But one thing I do feel confident in is, is like he would have he would have stepped further and further into diversifying his uh, financial portfolio and whatever that may look like. Now, at the time when he was alive, Big had said in interviews, and he said it a couple of months before he died, he was like, I don't want to be a 30-year-old rapper. He was like, if, if I'm still rapping at the time that I'm 30, then I'm doing something wrong. I need to make all the money that I can right now. And then by the time I'm 30, I can just basically be a suburban soccer dad and take care of my kids. Do I think he would have still been rapping at 30? Absolutely. Because just the dynamic of rap change and how how rap sounded change and how it looked change. So I I still think a Biggie guest verse in 2022, had he still been here, would be worth its weight in gold. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he would have he would have. The thing is, we all grew older and he didn't. So mm. he didn't he didn't get a chance to get older and still make mistakes at 27, 28, 29, 30 that we all have. He didn't get a chance to like, you know what, let me jump into this business endeavor. And, you know, Chrissy, you may have been like, come on, big, like, really? You know, so it's like Roger Goodell. Like, yeah. Come on, big. Yeah. So you just never know. But like I always say, he never hid his financial yeah. uh, ambitions. Right. It's, it's it's right there in the music. It's literally in the titles. You don't even have to listen to the music. All it's the right titles. there. Right. OK. All right. Justin, thank you so much for taking the uh, the time and joining us. The book is It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. Quick closer here. Yeah. What did you what did you uh what did you come to realize about Biggie and like what song hit you in the course of just going deep into his life? Uh the, the you weren't at at the start. Um it, it was always one of my favorite songs from him, but just over the course of reporting. And I hope when people read this book, I know they're probably going to, some people are going to be like, well, this is, you know, the, the Biggie Small story from life to death and, and thereafter. And I hope pe- people see that I got to paint this guy in a humanizing light. 
not in a with the with with the flattering light. Obviously, a, a lot of it is flattering, but I try to tell the story in the most honest and you you know vulnerable way, most vulnerable way possible, rather. And so, at the, throughout the course of my reporting, I especially getting to know who Biggie was becoming at the time of his death and where he wanted to take his life. The, the song Sky's the Limit has always been one of my favorite Biggie songs. But in particular, it's that third verse. So when he says, to protect my position, my corner, my lair, while we out here say the hustler's prayer, if the game shakes me or breaks me, I hope it makes me a better man. And, you know, he continues on in the verse. When I go back and listen to that song now, I don't even look at it as a Biggie Small song anymore. That was Christopher Wallace talking. That was Christopher Wallace saying that I will do whatever I have to do to protect my loved ones, to protect their safety, to protect their futures. And even if I'm not here anymore. And it like when I hear that verse now, especially a quarter century later, it just it gives me goosebumps, Harry. It gives me chill bumps because he did that. And he did so much in such a short amount of time that is just it's no pun intended. It's almost unbelievable. You know what I mean? It's almost unbelievable. So uh, I listen to that verse completely different now as as somebody who has written a book on the late, great Christopher Wallace. Justin, thank you so much. I know you were busy. I know that the book has just come out. Pub date was May 10th. It mm -hmm. was all a dream, Biggie in the world that made him. But we are so happy that you stopped by FAQ and MIC to talk about Biggie in New York City and and just the legacy of the late, great Christopher Wallace, who Harry and I are huge fans. I'll have to send you a, a picture. Harry gave me a t-shirt that says, give me the loot. And it's Biggie, but it's 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 trademarked and it's licensing. Yeah. And I, I think to your point, um, we it's probably would have seen a lot more than that. Yeah. L-U-T-E. And it's just Biggie, it's Biggie with, playing with a loot. medieval loot. <laughs> Uh, you got to send me that. I'll send I would you love the picture, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And you know, and this is another conversation. We got to have you back on um, because I'm fascinated with hip hop songs that are romantic raps, mm. even though they aren't framed as such. And I think me and my bitch is actually one of the most beautiful um, odes to a woman that he loves. Who's like on some ride or die. Yeah. Um, relationship stuff and then as someone who wrote the book black ethnics you know his his song um respect where yeah. you know you have kind of like that that baseline that caribbean mm -hmm. funk baseline that yeah. takes you back to the 60s which reminds me of like him living listening to records that is you know with his mom yep um and so this diasporic blackness that sort of seeps into his music that i'm just fascinated by no no like look Ready to Die is one of the more fascinating albums to dissect because there's so many different threads to pull from there. And mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm glad you said, uh, especially what you said about respect, because you can tell a lot of his upbringing was on that. And even the intro where, you know, the the, the parents are arguing and it, just mm -hmm. it feels like you get a crash course into what his life felt like right up until that moment when Things Done Change comes on. Right. I mean, so. we literally hear him being born. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure, like you, you May twenty first, well, nineteen is when my mama water bursts. <laughs> right, I won't, I won't be at the Parker Meridian this year, where I usually celebrate Biggie's birthday, because um, he loved talking about the Parker Meridian. But one yep. day we'll have to link up and and have a little um, sip champagne while we're Thursday at the Parker Meridian. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You just let me know. I will make the trip to New York for that.
Well, speaking of the trip to New York, last thing I think we'll use in the episode, uh, you're going to be in Brooklyn when, yeah. where, for anyone who wants to uh, cop the book, talk with yeah. you about it, whatever else. For sure. For sure. I'm asking everybody to come out. I, I will be at Greenlight Bookstore on May 16th. I believe uh, the time of the event is 7.30 p.m. Yeah, 7.30 p.m. See, Chris, you know my schedule better than I do. Uh, <laughs> 7.30 p.m. at Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn, right off Fulton Street. Uh, I'll be in conversation with the great Rob Markman about the book, about Biggie, about hip hop, just about, you know, everything under the sun, Biggie related. So we'll be there. I'll be there to sign books as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing as many people as possible. We can chop it up about whatever Biggie Smalls related topics you want to. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Justin. We'll see you at Greenlight Books, May 16th, 7.30 p.m. Sounds good. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics. Find us online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, Came to you this week from all across New York City. Special thank you to our guest, Justin Tinsley, author of It Was All a Dream, Begin the World That Made Him. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Anna Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Once again, be cool, be kind, be good, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, well, man. I think what's really fascinating, though, is because um, that documentary that was on Showtime about um, Harry was the video music box. Yeah. And we know that, you know, the guy who founded that, you know, was cousins with Jeffrey Holder. And wait, there's a documentary about video music box? Yeah, on mm-hmm. Showtime. Are you kidding it's me? I grew up to that shit. I know I, you I had did. No because as you can hear, Justin, I was born in Queens, but then we moved to Philly when I was five. Got you can tell up. Harry is the real New Yorker up in here. Yeah. Right? Like, now I can hear it. He, he, he said. <laughs> He made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Right. I was he's like, like Harry's, <laughs> he's our vintage New Yorker. And yeah. then Katie Honan is, is Queens. 